0: In Baytown, Texas, a city in which I lived for six years, a city where I met my wife and where many of her family members still live, there is an iconic restaurant named Luna's Mexican Grill. It's good Tex-Mex food and everyone in Baytown knows Luna's. When I lived there and when I was getting to know Julie's family, we went to eat at Luna's a lot. It was her family's favorite restaurant. But there was a detail, it wasn't actually a detail, it was a major factor about Luna's that was important to know for anyone and everyone who would eat there. And here it is. If you ate at Luna's, you would smell like Luna's. And this is not an exaggeration. Five minutes in that restaurant, you would leave your clothes, your hair, even your skin would smell like Luna's, strongly like Luna's Mexican food, until your next shower. And I remember even taking that into consideration when we would decide where we were going to have lunch. Well, I really want to go to Luna's. Well, what do I have to do this afternoon? Do I need to be with anybody? Do I need to be close to people? Am I going to be with in, in some kind of situation where I have to impress others because I don't want to smell like this? I remember one Sunday morning, um, I was leading worship at, at our church at the time there in the U.S., and Julie, my wife, she wasn't my wife then, but Julie was there, and uh, she was on the worship team as well, as, along with her sister and our brother-in-law. And we were sitting on the front row, and during the whole early service, we had two services there as well, during the whole early service, we kept smelling this awful odor, Quite frankly, it smelled like really strong, bo, you know, bodily odor, um, and we we kept asking each other. We'd sit down after a song and say, "What is that? What is that smell?" And you could see everyone, you know, kind of, you know, just checking themselves and making sure it wasn't them. After the service, we discovered the problem. It was Julie's purse that was under her chair. It was made of leather. And that purse had been at Luna's restaurant the night before. (laughs) Not a lie, not an exaggeration. It was terrible. And she had to get rid of the purse, actually. She didn't use it anymore after that. It was so bad. Here's the point. Last week, we read about Saul's conversion. Now you're like, where is he going with this? How in the world is he going to tie this in? We noted five aspects of a true conversion. This week, we're going to continue in the same theme, but from a different angle. We're going to look at the immediate aftermath of this conversion experience that Saul had. And specifically, I want to draw our attention to three effects, three inevitable results of a true conversion to Jesus. So remember Luna's Mexican Restaurant. If you went there, that's the cause you would smell like it. That's the effect, the inevitable effect. If a person is converted to Christ, that's the cause, there will be inevitable results. That's the effects. And we want to look at three of those effects that we see reflected in Saul's experience of conversion. I'll be reading our next passage in our ongoing study of the book of Acts, beginning with the second half, the second part of verse 13 of Acts 9. I'm sorry, not verse 13. Verse, see, this is where my eyes are. Verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Damascus. Let's take a moment and review our context. Saul was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to persecute Christians. He wanted to find all the people in Damascus, all the Jews in Damascus, that were followers of the way, and he wanted to throw them in prison. On that road, the blinding white light and presence of Jesus encounters Saul, confronts him, and Saul is blinded physically, but he is also convicted of the truth of the gospel. He's led into Damascus. He spends three days blind in Damascus praying and fasting, and eventually God sends Ananias to him, and Ananias lays his hands on Paul, prays for him. I'm sorry, lays his hands on Saul, prays for him, And Saul's physical eyes are opened, as are his spiritual eyes. And he is baptized, he receives the Holy Spirit, and he becomes a Christian, a believer in Jesus. That's our context. So we're still in Damascus and picking up the story. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name?" And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus." So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Brothers and sisters, the first effect of a true conversion is transformation. So we can state that positively by saying a true conversion results in transformation. Remember Saul was the greatest persecutor of the church. He was absolutely committed to destroying it and wiping the memory of Jesus out of Jewish consciousness. And in the space of just a few short verses, he becomes the church's greatest advocate and champion. Before We go into this transformation any further, I want to give you a timeline, a brief timeline, of these first few years of Saul as a believer. Because the account here in Acts is compressed. It's contracted, and it doesn't go into all the details. Paul himself, in his letter to the Galatians in the first chapter, and also some in 2 Corinthians, fills in some of those gaps. What happens? Paul, I'm sorry, Saul is converted, and he remains in Damascus, the text says, for many days. Then he has to escape. He's lowered from the window or from the opening in the wall in a basket, and he goes into Arabia, and he spends about three years in Arabia, and Paul himself, because he's Paul by that time, writes that in Arabia, Jesus appears to him. So in a very real sense, Paul is discipled directly and personally by Christ himself, which is another reason that Paul is called an apostle. The other 12 were also called apostles. Why? Because they had lived with and walked with Jesus. So Paul describes himself as an apostle, though not a naturally born one. He was an apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus while he was on the earth, but he received his calling and his apostleship directly and personally through revelation from Christ himself. Well, Paul is not liked by people in Arabia either, so he has to leave Arabia and he comes back to Damascus. And then in Damascus, he's persecuted again, and then he leaves Damascus and goes to Jerusalem. So in this account that we read here in Acts, it's compressed and we don't have that piece of his trip to Arabia. So the, the time in Damascus that's described here takes place on both sides of that trip into the Arabian wilderness. All right, how do we see transformation in Saul? He spends several days in Damascus, and it says at once he begins to preach right away. So in the course of three days, he, is, he changes from the greatest persecutor of the church to a church's proponent, the champion of the church. Secondly, he preaches specifically that Jesus is the son of God. So far in Acts, the emphasis has been on Jesus as Messiah, not directly on Jesus as the Son of God. Paul's preaching in Damascus, in some ways, is a turning point. It's not that anyone was denying that Jesus was the Son of God earlier. It's, that was not the focal point of the preaching, because they were preaching primarily to a Jewish audience who had a belief in the Messiah, But now we have a brand new believer, brand new, who has grasped the impact of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and that particularly for Gentile audiences who have no concept of a Messiah, the emphasis needs to be on the deity of Jesus. And it's remarkable, again, that this is coming through Saul. Beyond that, Saul then is persecuted, right? And he has to leave, so he ends up in Jerusalem. When he gets in Jerusalem, the text says that he speaks boldly in Jesus' name, and there he's teaching again that Jesus is the Messiah. And he debates with the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who had embraced Greek culture and Greek philosophy. It's it's kind of interesting that he debates with them, and clearly he wins the debate. Why? Because then they try to kill him. So I guess they decide, well, if we can't debate with this guy, if he's smarter than we are, we can always kill him and take care of him that way. This is a truly radical transformation. I would argue that Saul's conversion and his subsequent change is an argument, a strong argument in and of itself for the, for the truth of the gospel what else could explain this kind of change the the person of saul and paul later they are he is attested to in other historical writings not only in scripture so he was a recognized person that is attested to even from secular sources additionally his transformation is also attested to historically what could bring that about? Because it wasn't just a three or four day spiritual high. Many of you have been you know, on a youth retreat or some kind of spiritual retreat and you come back transformed for three days and then you're the same as you were before. Paul doesn't go to this you know, temporary spiritual high and then slide back into his old life. It's a lifelong transformation that gives him the courage to face persecution beyond what we can even imagine. What can explain that if it were not for the gospel and the transformation that Jesus brings about in the heart and life and attitudes and very being of a person who becomes a child of God? Now, accompanying this reality of transformation is a lie that the enemy of the church pushes on us And pushes on people who are beginning to consider a surrender to Jesus. It's the lie that you can go to Luna's restaurant and not smell like it afterwards. In other words, the lie that you can believe in Jesus, you can get saved, you can have your salvation from hell and from from sin. But that your lifestyle and your priorities... And your actions don't have to change. That you can be genuinely converted to Christianity and not be transformed. But that's a lie. And and this has implications not only for those who are considering Christ, as I said, but for those of us who are witnesses of Christ as well. Those who are already believers. Those of us who already self-identify as followers of Jesus who have already come to him in repentance for our sin and received his forgiveness and become daughters and sons of God, as we are witnesses for him, as we have opportunity to talk to others and share Jesus with others, we need to be sure to give them the full picture, the full gospel. We need to be clear with people that, as I said earlier, if they don't have to go to Luna's, They're not required to go there, but if they go, they're going to smell like it. They're not required to go to Jesus. They will not be forced to turn to him against their will, but if they choose to come to him, he will change them. They will be changed. And it's kind of a two-way street because he will consistently change the believer and he will also consistently require change from the believer. It's done by his grace and by his spirit, but he invites us to cooperate in our will with his transformation. A true conversion will result in transformation. Secondly, a true conversion will result in some level, and there are varying levels, but some level of rejection or opposition or persecution. It may not be immediate. It may be later on. It may be of varying degrees, but every child of God is going to face some kind of reaction at some point, some kind of opposition or suffering because of Christ. So in the case of Saul, what did he face almost immediately? First, Jews in Damascus try to kill him. They're watching the gates of the city so he can't escape, so he gets lowered in a basket through the wall. That must have been a really big basket. And I kind of, who has a basket that big lying around their house? I guess in the ancient Near East, things were different. I suppose they were. Anyway, he he gets lowered in a basket so that he can escape. He goes into Arabia, stirs up things in Arabia, so he has to leave Arabia. He comes back to Damascus. In 2 Corinthians 11.32, he's now Paul, he writes that when he got back to Damascus, there was a governor of Damascus who was a vassal, of King Aretes. King Aretes was an Arab king from Arabia. And so, apparently, this governor had gotten word, so he persecuted Paul and tried to kill him as well. I don't know. Paul may be one of the few people in history that has had both the Jews and the Arabs after him at the same time. After he returns to Damascus, he's persecuted there again, so he goes to Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, the church... Those who should be his his new brothers and sisters won't receive him. Understandably so. They imagine this guy is just trying to infiltrate our ranks. He's a spy. He wants to get on the inner circle so he can see who we are and then betray us all. So they don't accept him. Eventually, he is introduced into the church by Barnabas, and he starts preaching and debating, and the Hellenistic Jews hate it, and so they try to kill him. And then the church smuggles him out of Jerusalem and sends him to his hometown of Tarsus where he's going to be for a few years until we meet him again there later in the book of Acts. Now, that's a lot of persecution. And that's just the first three, three and a half years of Saul's life as a believer. Remember what Jesus said to Ananias about Saul? I will show him how much he must suffer because of me. And as I said, that's just the beginning. You read the rest of Acts and, and read Paul's epistles. You know there's beatings, there's whippings, there's imprisonment, there's shipwrecks, there's public humiliation, there are false trials, there are assassination attempts, there's beating until they thought he was dead, there's stoning. I mean, all this goes on in Paul's life. Talk about persecution and suffering. So I imagine most of us read those words, I will show him how much he must suffer because of me, and we think, Phew. I'm not Saul. This is a very specific statement that God made to Saul and about Saul. And that's true. I don't mean to suggest that the suffering or the persecution that most of us in this room will face throughout our lives with Jesus, I'm not suggesting that can compare to what Saul experienced or what many of our brothers and sisters in different places of the world experience today. Christians may be in China, in Nigeria, other locations where they are hard pressed and persecuted. But remember what Jesus' call to us is. To what does Jesus call the children of God? If anyone would come after me, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, what must that person do according to Jesus? Deny self, take up his cross, and follow. What is taking up a cross if not accepting that persecution, suffering, and hardship for the sake of Christ will come our way? In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples straight out that the world will hate them because it hated him first. That hasn't changed. That's still true. The world, the, the system of the world controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the enemy of the church, Satan himself, hates Jesus. So, of course, those who belong to him and those who claim him will also be hated. The apostle John also writes in his first epistle to all believers of all time, he says, do not be surprised, my brother, if this world hates you. Don't be surprised by that. Generally, we view suffering as the exception in the Christian life. But Jesus tells us, no, suffering is the norm. A life relatively free of opposition or suffering and trials, that's the exception. That's the the exception to the rule. It's not the rule itself. Of course, we want people to know that God is love that he's merciful, that, he, that, that that to know him and to be known by him is truly the greatest and highest blessing that exists. But we must also be honest with people about the cost. This goes back to the question of us being his witnesses. If, if we are not honest up front, then we can risk maybe a false conversion to an easy gospel. All of you know that there are many streams, many branches of Christianity that have based most of their theology on the teaching that if you come to Jesus, your life will be easier. If you come to Jesus, he's going to solve your problems, he's going to protect you from suffering, he's going to make sure that you prosper financially. And... Christ does those things sometimes in the lives of some of of, of the children of God. But again, that's not the norm. That's never something that's promised by Jesus. Quite the opposite. So we need to be honest about the cost. If we're not honest up front, then we risk false conversions to an easy gospel. and, And... Commitments that are going to fade away and wilt under the pain of of rejection and persecution and loss. Because my family and I travel from time to time to the United States, and earlier with the International Baptist Convention, before COVID, I was traveling uh, occasionally to to Europe for meetings. Uh, it was very convenient to have a cell phone plan that would allow me to use it wherever I am in the world. And yesterday, I went actually. Friday, I went to uh, one of the dealers of our cell phone company and I explained the situation. I said, what, what kind of plans do you have that would offer me international roaming at a reasonable price for me and my family would be ideal, um, but, you know, what do you have? And he started telling me about this plan. He said, look, it's up for up to 14 lines and you can use them unlimited worldwide, anywhere you go. And I'm like, this is incredible. I could even give some lines to my friends, you know, and say, hey, you guys who travel a lot, you can use this too. And you guys know where this is going, right? And then after telling me all these incredible benefits, he shows me the the price. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thanks. (laughs) But no thanks. We need the whole story, right? You hear all the, the benefits and they're wonderful, but we have to make sure that the whole picture is given. Otherwise, people who are converted only by this promise of of an incredible, peaceful, easy, wealthy life, when that's not the reality that they discover afterwards, they're going to leave. A true conversion will result in some level, at some point, of opposition and rejection or persecution. Which brings us to our third and final effect. A true conversion will cause a convert to seek and need the church. A true conversion will cause a convert to seek and to need the church. Paul describes how he went into Arabia and encountered Jesus. I've already told you about that. And earlier, how Jesus himself encountered encountered him, confronted him on the road to Damascus. But in Arabia, Saul was discipled personally by Jesus. I wonder what that must have been like. I don't think any of us have experienced that as far as I know. A face-to-face ministration from Christ. But even Saul even this man who had direct revelation from Jesus himself, he needed the church. And he needed human discipleship. We see this through three persons in Saul's story. Ananias, Barnabas, and then later Peter. Ananias prophesies over Saul, lays hands on him, receives his sight, receives the Holy Spirit, and is baptized. Next, when when Saul is in Jerusalem, we see Barnabas, who at great risk goes to Saul and says, come with me, brother. I believe that what's happened in you is genuine and I will introduce you into the church. And after that happens, um, Paul alludes to this in Galatians chapter one, after he's introduced and received by the church, he spends 15 days with Peter, with the apostle Peter, who was recognized as the leader of the church at the time. And then he also mentions that James was there, the Apostle James, for part of that time. I I try to imagine what those 15 days must have been like. I'm pretty sure they weren't playing video games. I think that was in a very intense time of discipleship. Maybe even mutual discipleship, where Paul and Peter are taking turns just pouring into each other, Sharing their vision, sharing their call, talking about the gospel, investing in each other, getting each other ready for the next set, the next phase of ministry to which God had called each one. And then, after those intense days with with Peter, for the rest of Paul's ministry, as he travels all around the known world, through his letters, we see him repeatedly mentioning specific individuals, specific believers that aided him, that helped him, that were a support to him. Some financially or materially, others through prayer, others who worked alongside with him in the gospel. Even Saul needed the church. And he realized it. When he came back to Jerusalem, where was the first place he tried to go? To the church. A true conversion, in a true conversion, the convert will realize, will seek, and will need the church. Now, again, this is a call to those of us who are already believers. We have been emphasizing over and over throughout our study of Acts that we are called as witnesses. But far too often, we see conversion as the finish line. So we're working with people and we're trying to get them. We're praying. we're praying with them to try to get them to cross that line of conversion. And then we're like, ah, oh, now they belong to Jesus. It's over. We really need to change our perspective because conversion is the starting line. And from, from the line of conversion, we move into a life of discipleship Can you imagine an Olympic athlete at the starting line and the gun goes off and they take one stride and they say, "Ah, I'm in the race. I made it. I made it to the Olympics. I'm gonna go take a shower. No, the race is going. They're gonna compete. That's the reason they got there. So the race of the Christian life it, in a sense, begins at conversion. So for those of us who are God's ambassadors, who are witnesses for him, our responsibility does not end when the person that we've been sharing with con- converts, when they accept faith in Jesus. It begins, it, it, it changes into then a walk of discipleship. Discipling them. And as, as Jesus himself said it in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. We see in, in Ananias and particularly in Barnabas an investment in Saul that involved risk and sacrifice to themselves. And if we follow Christ's call to disciple others, it's going to require sacrifice from us as well. Sacrifice of priority, of time, sometimes a level of risk as well. But if those who are truly converted are going to seek and need the church, then those already in the church need to be attuned to opportunities to receive those, those who are less mature than ourselves, and disciple them into the image of Christ. Remember, we're making disciples of Jesus. We're not making disciples of ourselves. And then in the economy of God, the vision is that we disciple, disciplees who will then disciple others, who will then disciple others, who will then disciple others. We call that multiplication, multiplying discipleship. This is an integral part of our vision as a church. Calvary International Church, the vision of Calvary International Church is to be a vibrant family glorifying God through multiplying, discipling, equipping, and sending. Multiplying disciples. There's a role for everyone in this church to act in a disciple-making way. Given that, I have uh, something I, I just briefly want to share with you. It's an overview. The specific job description will be coming later. But as the deacons, with input from a lot of you, have narrowed down what we understand that a new staff member's focus would be here at calvary a pastor for youth and discipleship Um, there are other things that could come under that umbrella but we understand that those are right now the two most urgent ministries of the church that need to be addressed Um, To have someone that is focused on ministering and shepherding and pastoring our youth And someone who is leading a vision for discipleship pathway and multiplication within the church A detailed job description will be shared with you via email and WhatsApp a little later on So that you can also pass that on And if there's anyone that you know of that you would recommend for that position Then you could nudge them to apply as well Now, there are two ways that I would like us to evaluate these principles that we just talked about. The first is by examining our own lives and asking ourselves if we see these signs in us. Since we first professed faith in Jesus, as I look back over the history of my life, do I see transformation? Has there been change? Godly change. I'm not suggesting that it needs to be as dramatic or as immediate as Saul's. But it does need to be present. Because we cannot be converted into Christ and not change. It's inevitable. And I also want to be clear that that this is a a transformation into the image of God. God. So can we trace ways that we are maturing, ways that we're becoming more like Jesus in our attitudes, in our actions, in our righteousness, in our holiness, and in our joy? One more thing here, let me address. This doesn't mean that you may not have a specific area of challenge or weakness that you just can't seem to get past. Now let me explain what I mean by that. I'm not talking about necessarily that you, you, you continually sin, but I'm talking about a, a temptation that you would love to leave behind, but it just seems like that temptation just keeps raising itself up in your life. If that describes you, then take heart, because you're like Paul. It's not in this text. But most of you know, Paul writes about this thorn in his flesh. The context of that thorn, he says that he had received such great revelations directly from Jesus. And directly because of that, he said, because I received such great revelations from Jesus, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I mean, you can imagine someone who gets to talk face-to-face with Jesus, why that could lead to a certain amount of spiritual arrogance or conceited, or conceit. And Paul says, because of that, this messenger from Satan, a thorn in my flesh, was allowed to torment me. And I prayed three times, begging God to take it away. And God said, no. But my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think that that thorn of Paul's was a temptation It was a consistent temptation to a specific sin and he desperately wanted to leave that behind but that temptation kept reminding him of his need for God's grace. That he was not, he could not be prideful or arrogant. I've conquered it all. I am perfect. No, that temptation kept coming and kept coming. Now it doesn't mean that he was just saying, oh, God's grace is sufficient so I can just keep sinning. It's not a problem. No, the point of that is that God's grace is sufficient that even in temptation, his power is made perfect in our weakness to keep us from sin and to give us the victory. So when I talk about transformation in us, I'm not suggesting that you've attained perfection or that you have to attain perfection on this earth, but what I am talking about is a process that's ongoing but noticeable of sanctification and transformation. Secondly, if there's suffering or persecution or resistance or opposition in your life because of Jesus, be reminded and encouraged that it's not punishment from God. It might be discipline, but it also might be a result of the fact that you love him and the world hates him and the forces of evil hate him and finally do we seek out and value the church do we have we sought to be discipled to have a more mature brother or sister in Christ walk with us and guide us Um, last year we had a, many of you participated in a, a one day, one afternoon really intensive discipleship training course, reproducible disciple making. I don't know if you remember that with, um, with uh, Dr. Daryl who who is visiting one of the, the leaders of the church multiplication strategy of the IBC, the International Baptist Convention. I know that some of you are continuing to use that method And please understand me, that is a method. It is not the only method for discipleship. Some of you are using that in triads and you are discipling others. Here's my request. If you're doing that, would you just let me know? And I'm drawing Roberto into this, um, that tall, handsome, masked man at the back, um, because he's often in the foyer and he's there as people come and go. So if you are actively participating in, In discipling someone, would you let us know, one of the two of us know, so that we can begin to celebrate those things as a church? The second thing is, the second question is, do you want to be discipled? And you've never had that kind of consistent, ongoing relationship of discipleship with someone? Then, likewise, please let Roberto or myself know. Now I want us to move to the second way to evaluate these principles, and that's in the light of witness. So the first was in light of our own personal lives. Now, this is in the light of us as witnesses. And I've already touched on this through this text. It won't take long to do that now. But the first question is, when when I'm sharing the gospel, am I giving people the full picture? Am I giving them the full picture of transformation? And am I also giving them the full picture of resistance and opposition? The cost. So are we upfront about the cost as well as... The benefit. And then thir- finally, are you willing to be a disciple maker? Are you willing to invest in other newer, younger believers sacrificially with your time, with your experience, and with your relationship with Christ? So again, here's a practical opportunity. If you're willing to be a disciple maker also give your name either to Roberto or to myself after the service now I know that some of you might say well I'm not old enough yet to be a disciple maker well scripture doesn't really give us a, an age uh, and I think that this is a call to everyone because there will always be people more mature than you spiritually and less mature than you are spiritually and so maybe God is nudging you And saying, you know what? You haven't achieved perfection. But there are others that have walked with Jesus for less time than you have. And you have something to share with them. And as I've said before, discipleship isn't about making a disciple of yourself. It's about making disciples of Jesus.